0: Hello, and welcome to the Inspiring Leadership Podcast. We trust you'll benefit from our unique lineup of CEOs, generals, and leaders from all business sectors. Whether you're an aspiring, inspiring leader, or a seasoned leader seeking further motivation, this podcast provides you with practical life tips, sound wisdom, and world-class leadership advice. I'm your host, Jonathan bowman Perks. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this week's Inspiring Leadership podcast. I'm delighted to have another podcast host, and um, I've got a, a former Royal Air Force officer, a two-star, as they call in the, the in any force. Uh, in the Army, it's called a Major General. Uh, he was an Air Vice marshal in the Royal Air Force, 34 and a half years and Bob's got some great stories to tell. Um, also spent a lot of time as a director in Deloitte since he came out of the Royal Air Force. So that that wealth of experience in the military and being a pilot, of course, he's got some great stories to tell. If you ever meet him at the bar, he will tell you that he was a pilot in the Royal Air Force. But without further ado, and I won't tease
1: him too much, welcome, Bob. Good to have you on the series. Yeah, thanks, Jonathan. Great to be here. Really, uh, really appreciate the opportunity.
0: Yeah. So... Um, well, we we're going to talk first about uh, a couple of people that you have found inspiring, uh, inspiring leaders and women, and that you think you know you know them well enough. You serve with them. Maybe they would be your guest that you'd like to. You know, I, I always like people to introduce somebody that they have found inspiring as, as their guest on the podcast. So, who would be who would be your two on the on the podcast?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think as you'd expect, probably on the back of forty years worth of career, there's there's plenty of people I could have chosen um, because there have been a, a lot of really inspirational people over my career. But the the two that uh, that I thought about that were particularly appropriate for this. One is is actually from my time in America, where I worked in the, in the Pentagon for for nine months, uh, and he was a chap called General Chuck Jacoby who at that point was the uh, director of of the plans directorate in the joint staff so the tri service, if you like, uh, or in in their case four services, because the Marine Corps is a separate service uh, element of uh, of what goes on and we were there um, when the Libya campaign was happening in 2011 Uh, and. Uh, he went on subsequently, he ended up commanding Northcom, Northern Command, in uh, which is the home command essentially for the, for the U.S., looks after uh, NORAD and all of the air defense of, uh, of the U.S. and Canada. And he was just, he was as an army general, um, clearly with a very distinguished career of his own through lots of operational time. Uh, and he was just a massively impressive figure. He was one of these guys that very quickly inspired trust in you we worked very closely together in a world where we were sharing a lot of quite uh specific detail from a us uk point of view and he was just great at bringing me into his team integrating me in and you could tell the people that worked for him more generally were they just loved him and he he was one of these guys you would have followed him off a cliff pretty much he, he was fantastic to uh to work for and the second one was or uh, well, is a lady called uh, Stacey Winters, who actually is second half of my career, if you like, uh, or was more recent chapter, who's at Deloitte. And she these days, she's the managing partner consumer in North and South Europe for, uh, for Deloitte. But previously, when I was working more directly for her, she was in risk advisory, which is where I was. Uh, and again, it was all about for me, it was all about inspiration. She was she's clearly to have got to that position. She was fant- you know, fantastically capable, really good at her job uh but actually what she did do really really well was care about the people and you Mm. could tell that she really was genuinely caring about the people and was very social really liked the uh the interaction with people and was just an absolutely lovely person to work for but at the same time extremely efficient productive and and that's why she's carried on and continues to get promoted so no, both of them fantastic figures really really
0: Mm. great Mm. Now, I mean, lovely to have had that experience, both in uh, a job. You were um, the, the chief of the defense staff's liaison officer in the Pentagon. So you met some really interesting people, uh, including on in your own podcast. We uh, we both have uh, General Petraeus. As, uh, he's going to appear in your podcast and he's appeared on mine. Fascinating guy. But but just great experience you've had, which takes me on to the next bit. Uh, I often talk with people about, you know, what's shaped them. Uh, let's just go straight into your, your your service, the 34 and a half years in the Royal Air Force to tell us about almost give us a, a, a thumbnail sketch of some of the great roles that you had and the fun bits that you did in what was an interesting role, both as a pilot in Jaguar in Phantom, in Typhoon, and also some, some really interesting staff jobs. Give us a bit of a flavour,
1: Bob. Yeah, well, as you say, I'm a pilot, so I love talking about myself and, uh, and flying so that won't be hard. Uh, so, uh, you know, it's a great career that we always smile about. And if you put a bunch of pilots in the bar, they're, they're never going to be short of things to talk about. Uh, I I, mean, I was very lucky. I, I joined uh, in 1980, very back end of 1980, uh, was a pilot, went into flying training, went through the flying training system relatively quickly by comparison to today. Uh, so I was, was on a squadron. Just as a 21 year old, I arrived in Germany on a frontline squadron uh, with a couple of months to go before my uh, before my 22nd birthday, which is was pretty much unheard of these days. And that's because I'd gone obviously straight from school, uh, didn't go to university, uh, and, and in those days that again was obviously much more common than it is now. And I was a frontline Jaguar pilot in the uh, in the Cold War um, when we were just in the process of transitioning from Jaguar to Tornado, so we were winding down the Jaguar squadrons. And it meant I moved quite quickly through various different squadrons, I did uh, did about 18 months at uh, Bruggen in the, the nuclear strike attack role, so there's a nuclear role and the conventional bombing role, and then I moved up to reconnaissance at, uh, at Larbrook on a different squadron, in, in again in Germany. Uh, did an exchange tour after that, uh, and went to uh, to German Air Force Bremgarten down in the uh, in the southwest of Germany in the Black Forest, uh, gorgeous place, uh, right on the Swiss and French borders. Uh, in a in a really interesting time because I arrived there in September '89, and in November '89 the Wall came down, Berlin Wall came down. Uh, so for the Germans that of course was just a huge thing. Uh, with uh, with a reunification now on the horizon, and that would always been the number one point on their constitution, but they never thought it was realisable, and suddenly it was. So that was again made it for a pretty fascinating, uh, fascinating opportunity. And of course, it was great to learn the language um, and to fly a different aeroplane as well, because Phantom was a lot of fun to uh, to operate. I went back to the UK, did uh, did a bunch more flying. Um, again, something that probably wouldn't happen these days. I mean, I was 14 years in the cockpit before I ended up coming out of it to go and do some staff tours and uh, and do things around the, the Ministry of Defence, and uh, and that was a great privilege because it gave me a real in depth amount of flying. Lots of it on operations over uh, over Iraq post the Gulf War, uh, when we were enforcing the no fly zone. Uh, I was actually I was with the Germans when Gulf War One happened, so I didn't participate in that. Uh, but then we did bosnia as well when this, obviously there was all the serbian aggression into uh, uh into bosnia and we were there as a un uh, mission at that stage again, doing largely reconnaissance uh flying over the uh, over the top of uh of bosnia heartbreaking actually to to do that because it was just so sad to see the destruction that uh, that was being wrought on a daily basis and and because we were there as un effectively peacekeepers, but with no peace to keep, it was very, very difficult because we we couldn't uh, do anything. Our rules of engagement didn't allow us to do anything, even in the face of uh, uh, some instances, watching artillery shelling Sarajevo um, when we were relatively toothless, very frustrating. Um, but after that, I did get collared. Finally, to uh, to go to the ground, did uh, did a series of uh, ground jobs and further training. It's one of the things the military is great at, as you know yourself. You know for the the staff college type environment, and uh, and the, the training system provides you with great professional military education as you go through. Uh, I ended up going back, commanding a Jaguar squadron, um, more operational flying, more time on an airplane that I knew intimately by that stage, and was was really very familiar with. And then when it came to moving to sort of the next command role, um, I was a little bit on the horns of a dilemma because I could see the Jaguar was about to go out of service. I thought I'm not sure where my opportunity is going to come from to commander station here. Uh, and actually, as luck would have it, I was in a desk uh, job running the Typhoon introduction to service. And I became the first station commander at RAF Coningsby with the Eurofighter Typhoon. Uh, my predecessor had hoped he was going to get that job where he was going to have airplanes on the base. He was there pre- presiding over all the transition work to get that, get the airplane or get ready for the airplane. Uh, but ultimately, it was me that was there when the, when the jets arrived, and that was fascinating in a, in a whole range of different ways because I was I'd never done the air defense role before. We were working up the airplane in a uh, uh, in an air defense capability. And so there was a bit of imposter syndrome for sure, and I've talked about that on my own podcast recently. Actually, that that was a real challenge. That you know, I'm now in a senior role, building a force, uh, when actually you know, I had relatively little, very little experience in the uh, in that kind of environment with a, with a brand new jet. So it was it was pretty challenging, but I also had the joy in that stage of uh, or in that time of, of flying with the Battle of Britain Memorial Flight, and I uh, flew the Spitfires and the Hurricanes on the Battle of Britain Memorial Flight, which any red-blooded fighter pilot will tell you is you know that is just um, an immense opportunity i think all of us would would love to fly spitfires and i got to do it and i was very <laughs> very fortunate to do that uh so it's fantastic fun uh and on the back back of that that was actually the last air force job dedicated air force job i did in my career i, I did a whole series of joint jobs after that so i went to uh, to afghanistan uh in 2008 uh done some more training stuff before that with the the Harkamana staff course and Royal College of Defence Studies but then I was in Afghanistan commanded the base uh, big NATO base uh in uh, in Kandahar which was an enormous thing it was 25,000 people 170 airplanes uh 20 plus nations and I was kind of the chief cat herder um to try and control everything that was going on I was responsible for all of the air environment, all of the force protection on and off the base in a big grand defence area um, area around the base, and uh, all the logistics. And, and as you can imagine, in a place like that, the logistics is huge because everything's got to be brought in, you know, you're in through a, host, through a hostile environment. So it's pretty challenging. Um, went from there back to a job in the Ministry of Defence, uh, looking after all of our targeting and information operations work. And from there, as you already mentioned, the, the two, to the Chief Defence Staff's Liaison Officer in Washington. Uh, which was surprising the way it came about, and I might talk about that later, I suppose. But the uh, it, it was uh, it was great because I was there at a really interesting time when the Libyan um, campaign was happening to depose uh, uh, Gaddafi from power, uh, and so it was a fascinating, very very busy nine month uh, tour in in Washington. And then it was kind of the beginning of the end, military-wise, because I was I headed back to on promotion to Air Vice Marshal, my final rank. Uh, went in to be the Assistant Chief Defence Staff Operations, uh, but again, I was lucky. I continued to be lucky because I was there at a really interesting time. I arrived in 2011, at back end of 2011, and of course, in 2012 we had the Olympics. Uh, and as most of your listeners will probably recall, the uh, the, the security for the London 2012 Olympics was. Uh, Interesting challenge because the the original plan had been that a company called G4S were going to provide all of the venue security. The military clearly had a big role in air security, maritime support security and some specialist roles. But we were not expecting to be securing the venues. Uh, And suddenly G4S essentially didn't deliver what they were contractually obliged to deliver uh, and had to essentially step back. To enable it to be done properly, and the military had to step in. So we brought a very significant number of people in. Ultimately, you know, twenty or thousand people finally in the final analysis, into uh, to help. I think none of us had expected that it would be as successful as it was. We were, were wary of doing it. The International Olympic Committee were very wary of us doing it, and the, and the British government didn't want us to do it either, not least because our Olympics was after Beijing, and which had been very militarised, and therefore they didn't want that same image. But what it succeeded in doing, amazingly, was connecting the British military back to the British public in a way that really hadn't been achieved for decades. And because of... The challenges around the troubles in Northern Ireland, et cetera. We, as you again, you'll well know, we had lived in a world where people were not terribly public and we didn't go around a lot in uniform in public and so on. And suddenly we're policing you know, the security uh, entry points to the Olympics in uniform, engaging the public in a way that I think really surprised the public and was was just, it was fantastic. It was really, really interesting and enjoyable time. Uh, I moved from that to my very final job where I was the Director of Joint Warfare in uh, 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 at Joint Forces Command, um, which is now called Strategic Command. It's the uh, you know, the, the sort of separate command from the individual uh, services. And that, again, was a brilliant final job. So I was looking after all the exercising, tri-service exercising that we were doing across uh, the whole of defence, uh, working very closely with the French as we built up a, uh, a joint expeditionary force with the French. Uh, and you know, I couldn't have wished for... A better end to what was just an amazing, amazing run. I've mm. been so lucky to uh, to get to the point I had by uh, you know, by the end of it, and and you know, just loved it. But it was then it was time to go.
0: Yeah, and and how did you get the job with Deloitte? Because uh, in their risk advisory, that that's a bit of a cracking step to to go from uh, a great job in the armed forces into an equally very well respected uh, firm, global firm.
1: Yeah, it was a, it's another great question. I, I, I think the military transition thing for most of us, you know, you, you know you're going to leave at some point, but you never really think about it too much. And I thought, right, okay, I'm pretty sure I'm going to get a job. I'm pretty sure it, it'll, be, it'll be something that will be you know, appropriately challenging, but I didn't really know what I was looking for. Uh, and it was a friend of mine actually who'd worked for me uh, earlier in uh, when I was a station commander at Coningsby. She was working for Deloitte and said, hey, you ought to come and have a look at this. I think you'll really enjoy it. Uh, and I did, and that started a conversation that you know, essentially unlocked the opportunity to join. I think the Olympics thing really helped because I joined the crisis and resilience business unit uh, in uh, in the firm, and I'd worked in Cobra in the government's emergency machinery a lot uh, yeah. when I was um, when I was in my ops job. and <clears throat> the uh, excuse me and that helped because inevitably that was a uh um you know it was something that they didn't have anybody else that had done that and so in credibility terms that was so uh, was pretty useful i think when we're then dealing with crisis management advice and support both in terms of building up capability for uh for corporates to be more resilient against crisis but actually also handling themselves in the midst of one uh and so they, yeah that was that was great and i did it I, I i stayed for three and a half years uh but then again i was uh, I faced a, a bit of an inflection point as to what am I going to do, and that was where I then then decided I'd move again.
0: Mm, well, no, it's a fascinating story. Uh, what, because I deliberately wanted you to go into your armed uh, forces experience. What we didn't uh, share was um, the um, your upbringing and and just how that influenced you, because both of us, it turns out, were similar age. Our fathers uh, died or were killed, my, your died, mine was killed, when we were two and a half and three, and then, you know, brought up by essentially a single mother. T- tell us a bit about that upbringing and, and who influenced you to be the leader you are today.
1: Yeah, it was a, um, it was t- tough times, I think. I mean, my, as you say, my dad died when I was three. He'd been a wartime pilot, uh, so He'd come from South Africa originally. He's born in South Africa, moved to the UK before the war. Gone to Cambridge. Uh, so the academic gene clearly didn't come down to me. Um, but he then joined up at World War Two. Uh, was a uh, was a Blenheim pilot for a big chunk of the front end of World War Two, and then moved in as many of the kind of operational pilots did. They, they did operations and then stepped back from it and did training and so on to put more people in, so avoiding some of the stress side of that. Um, But then sadly, he'd he'd met my mum while he was still serving. uh, And they got married, I think, just after he'd actually left the Air Force. But uh, he died when I was only three. And the uh, the net result is I don't really have any memory of him. um, But I've got obviously all of the Sort of memorabilia and bits from that time and i think the the genetics obviously played a bit of a part i've got quite a military family as well i've got most of my uh um my family have been in the service at one from one sort or another and include my mother who she was in the army uh when when she met my father uh and very proudly marched on Her majesty the late queen's coronation parade in 1953 wow. and he uh, constantly used to point out "This is me that's me they, uh, <laughs> you know, every time it came on tv um, which was always a lovely moment, but I, I, when I was at school, I was very attracted to the flying thing, and um, I, I'd uh, school was an opportunity that had been presented to me because my mum had worked really hard to get me into Christ Hospital in Horsham, which was, it was for those that don't know about it, it's an amazing charitable school. It was founded way back 1552 um it's an independent boarding school but it it is a very very significant bursary school so um by by a factor of three the most generous of bursaries in in the country Uh, and mum didn't pay anything for my education so i was really conscious of that by that stage and i needed to do something and it and the great thing school did was it opened up the avenues for me to be able to do that uh, and I think it made me much more independent, much more robust as an individual. Set me up brilliantly to uh, to then go and step off into uh, into the service. And I, I'm I mean, sadly, my mum's no longer, longer with us. But you know, before she died, I mean, she knew how grateful I was for everything she'd done because I think being a single mum in the '60s, as, as clearly yours was as well, you know, that, that was a really mm-hmm. tough thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, and, but know, both
0: too- our mothers died about a similar time, actually, and it's it's uh, uncanny really. And uh, it's very special how you have that forces connection. Your dad was a pilot. My dad was a pilot, um, uh, you know, died before their long before their time, really before their time was up. Um, Those, as you say, that was a tough time. Looking back on your career, uh, both personally and in your, uh, your service in the Royal Air Force and your time in Deloitte and, and the coaching work you're doing now, what would you say is one of your darkest moments in your life and what did that teach
1: you yeah it's an easy question to answer sadly um i i was got remarried uh in 2006 uh and in 2008 my wife was uh was fell pregnant with what turned out to be twins um which we were delighted about um surprised um but delighted about but sadly it didn't go to plan at all and uh, they were born very prematurely they were born just after 24 weeks uh and obviously survival chances at that that age very very limited um and we knew that from the outset but they didn't survive they lasted 24 hours uh and the i suppose that was bad enough Uh, and that was obviously really a really terrible moment but the thing that was really doubly bad on the back of that was my wife then went into, uh, back into hospital. She clearly was obviously in hospital for that and, and was discharged a, a day or so later, but then was back into hospital uh, two or three days after that with what, what then turned out to be septicemia. Wow. Uh, and she spent five days in intensive care, uh, was survived, survived it and survived it really unscathed, which is miraculous uh and i can vividly remember the the doctor um she was saying oh thank god it all worked out all right and he said no no thank god you know thank antibiotics it all worked out all right because it was she was on the strongest intravenous intravenous antibiotics that you know exist to to turn around and that, it was hor- absolutely horrific to walk through the intensive care ward every day which is bad enough anyway um you know but then just on the back of what had happened to uh, to the twins that was a really really spectacularly tough time added to which I was in a you know in a busy job and again I talked about this on my own podcast a bit that I think some of the challenges around around that managing your way through it thinking about how how should I have handled that what should I have done with the benefit of hindsight should have handled it differently and I think I should I think I was I was pretty closed about it. Uh, I didn't really talk to very many people at all in fact there were very few people that really knew and, and even up to the point I talked about it on my own podcast just very recently. I think a lot of a lot of even my friends might have been quite surprised because they just didn't know that that had happened to us. And we taken that sort of deliberate stance to do that, but i'm not sure it was with hindsight, it was the wisest thing to do, I think we might have got more move through it more swiftly, move through it more straightforwardly, if you like, with the support and uh, undoubtedly love and support of of lots and lots of other people. Uh, So that was definitely – that was a really Mm. dark time.
0: Well, I mean, I'm really sorry to hear that. And the death of the twins is just something you'll always remember all your life. But it sounds like you had a double whammy that two-year period, your mother dying – and then the twins dying and then is it Sabjit, your your wife yeah. uh, where she was pretty close to dying with septicemia, and you were in which job were you in what was the busy was it
1: i was back in emd i mean very luckily I, yeah when my mum was poorly and uh, and uh, subsequently died I was in courses I was actually on the royal college defense studies when my mum died which was meant there was space for them to let me get away and and do some stuff with uh, you know be with her and and literally right at the end that was was great to be able to be there and be supportive uh when I was when we lost the twins I was I was in a job in the mod um hmm. so which was the was targeting information operations job which was it was okay in the sense that I was at home and I was commuting and I was able to go to all the hospital appointments and everything else with my wife. And and then clearly when she was really ill, I took some time off, obviously. Uh, and the, so it was, it was manageable. It, it, it could definitely have been worse. I mean, if I'd been away on deployment and the year prior I was on deployment, uh, that would have been just horrendous, but it, it was bad enough as it was.
0: Well, it, I just can't imagine what it was like for you. And I just think back to a dark moment I had when um, I was serving on operations in Northern Ireland. And um, I was company commander, my commanding officer was a guy called Andrew Farker. And 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 my wife, uh, my first wife, uh, Bridget was really struggling. It was a tough time, we had two, un, uh, uh, um, two under uh, two years old. And I won't go to the complication, but it was it was a very difficult time. And I had to go back to be there. But he had absolutely no empathy whatsoever. You know, like you're letting the side down, almost like, why do you need to leave now? We're on operations in Northern Ireland, you know. Get, get just grow a, grow a set of balls, get on with it, you know. And like, and I was really choked. I was almost close to tears. And he, he, I could see the disdain on his face as he looked at me. and went, really? Okay, just go and take a couple of weeks, but come back. You know, no, real human people would say, Jonathan, how long do you need... Let's clear the decks. You've got a good team. They can take over. This is the most important thing. Your family, your wife, your children are the most important thing. But I think sometimes, and, and you and I were talking about this before we went on air, that the military has this mix of some very fine leaders and the white collar psychopaths who really just are so ambitious for their own ends. I and mean, Unfortunately, my bit of the service, the infantry and the, uh, particularly the army, have far less empathy and far more shouty shouty than the Royal Air Force and the and the Royal Navy. What's what's your own experience, Bob? Without mentioning any names, but.
1: Yeah, I think it's a really, I mean, that story is awful as well. I and mean, obviously, I would like to think we're better than that. Um, across the whole of the military these days, uh, the and certainly in the corporate world is definitely better than that. And and, uh, and I think that's, uh, it's just awful when you get those kind of experiences. On the leadership point, I th- I think you're right. I think that the it's a myth that the military is all about authoritarian leadership It's absolutely not uh, the there are lots of um there's a lot of requirement apart from anything else to not be an authoritarian leader in large chunks of the military it has its place there are occasions when i used to joke a lot to people that you know we're we're there to preserve democracy not to practice it and (laughs) you know and ultimately you need to turn around and have a strong view about um, you know the hierarchy exists and and if you can't reach a consensus that's appropriate with the people you've got then you might well need to take a a decision to be a bit more executive about it, but that's a rarity, I mean by and large, I, in my experience, we, we would work very hard to convince people who in many instances were smarter than me I mean by academically much smarter than me and you know when I was commanding a squadron and a station I had lots and lots of people working for me who were far advanced of me in terms of uh, of academic qualifications and who would quite rightly you know expect to be convinced rather than just told. And ultimately, they'll do what they'll do what they're told because that's the business you're in. but they won't like it, and they're not going to follow you very much after that. If you're, uh, you know, if you are in that position, so I think we we have we've got ourselves into a place with uh, which is better now. But I think it has been you know through some hard won situations. And I know exactly what you mean. I mean, I've I've seen the same as you. you know, I've seen people actually in all three services who are great leaders, and I've equally seen some that. Uh, you kind of go, whoa, I'm never going to be like that. And interestingly, when I, mean, I you, know, you talk about development of leadership styles, I mean, I, I've, I've built my own leadership style, I suppose, over the years by looking at what he's done or she's done and looking at what he's done or she's done. And I'll kind of cherry pick, go, yeah, I'm going to copy that. And I'll build that into my portfolio of things and you know equally i'm never going to do that (laughs) yeah yeah
0: well you're advising and coaching and helping leadership teams and individuals be better we're in a very similar field and this is why it's a lovely connection with you and and i rarely have fellow coaches on my podcast i don't need that i want the actual leaders i'm going to work with but i just really enjoy the interaction that we had and i thought you bring something that's quite different but and I, ha- I haven't sort of prepared you for this, but I just wondered if there were two or three themes that you're seeing in the business leaders, and you you've worked with many different businesses, both in Deloitte now in your own right. What are the three top things that leaders are really struggling with in business that that you've been able to help them with? If you just if you just narrow it down to perhaps three that they're really struggling
1: with in in business. I yeah, so great question. I I think the the top one is probably the gen Z world, if you like, uh, to, to box it in that space, which I think has been doubly complicated by COVID, uh, and the changes that have happened during, uh, you know, during COVID where people got used to hybrid working or working remotely and doing what we're doing now. You know, we're both sat at home, you know, talking on a, on a, on a call and you've got, in a, in a lot of companies, you've got at least a couple of generations of, you know, two, two annual cycles, uh, if not more, of people who have joined the organization who have never been in a position of starting in the business of going into work and doing what they do in the office and, and building up and, and developing as pretty much everybody else has done before them. And even before you got to that point, they had a kind of different expectation. They were more challenging. They were more questioning. They have a different approach to how long they're going to spend in a career. Um, because why do I do that? I don't want to be in somewhere for 20 years. I want to be somewhere for four and then I'm going to move and go and do something else. And, and again, we were talking about that a little bit before uh, before we came on, on air. Uh, and I think that's a real challenge for leaders. I think the, the when I do work with Deloitte University, uh, that I do quite a lot of to, to facilitate their global manager, so global senior manager and global director milestones, For that level, uh, the kind of mid to to senior level, just below partners, they are finding that really, really challenging. uh, And navigating the way through it is is hard. And I think, I mean, my answer and my honest answer to Batch them is, I think to some extent, there is a need to be empathetic, but also to, they do need a little bit of tough love. I mean, the the, the reality is that um, how do you assess someone if you never see them in the office ever uh you know and you know if you're comparing someone who is regularly you know committing themselves visibly participating in everything that goes on and you've got somebody else who might actually be delivering but you know you you never see them you don't have any real awareness of exactly how they're working and they're just not a team player then that's a a challenging area
0: just staying with that before you go into the other two themes that you you think are coming up that is so current for me i was having a conversation with a, a neighbor in my village here and they were saying, you know, I was hired by this firm. We've got two children, I think they're 10 and uh, 12. Um, my husband works. Uh, we got to travel from, from Grantham down to London. Uh, he's two days a week in the office. And mine was that I could work from home, but maybe once a week come in. They're now saying three times a week. But I was hired for a, a headquarters that is in London. Another colleague is in Manchester, another colleague is in Bristol. And they expect us all now. They've gone, right, three days a week in the office. And they, and they go like, but that wasn't how I joined. That wasn't the deal. I, would, I wouldn't I would have joined you if I'd known that. And another firm who I'm working with in America, where their employee engagement scores have gone Poof, like this. And they went, I ah, could have been because we went three days a week in the office, no negotiation. Uh, and actually, no, we did ask them what they thought, and then we ignored them. And we just said, three days a week we just want to see you we don't you know tough get on with it and they're all massively resentful and also feeling (laughs) the neighbor in the village went the reason they've done this three days a week is our numbers are down we're not making as much money and they think i know what we'll do we'll get everybody in the office they'll all work harder and we'll make more money she goes it's counterproductive i've gone sod you i don't feel like working so i'm just I'm just getting by. I don't feel like really giving my all because they don't care about me. They just, I'm just an, a bum on a seat and they want that bum in London when actually I don't live in London. I live here and I've got two small kids and they're at school and I've got life and everything else going on. I wouldn't have take the job on. So it's a real big issue around the world with different firms who've gone, right, we're gonna be tough. This is the decision. We'll, we'll ask your opinion, but we really are not going to listen to it because we're not
1: democratic. Yeah, and I mean, a number of other factors in there as well, aren't there, around cost? Uh, mm-hmm. You know, just in terms of if you're particularly where people have made a, a life choice to move out of the mm-hmm. cities and then having to commute back into uh, to go to work. Uh, and, you know, certainly in the UK at the moment, balancing that with train strikes and things like that, where obviously it's making life doubly difficult for people. So I think there are some real, really genuine challenges people are facing. It's interesting, though, I think that the financial services industry. By and large, I mean, there's no universal truth. I think went for go back to the office, uh, and you know, pulled most people back pretty quickly. Whereas uh, professional services firms like Deloitte, for example, has absolutely not done that. Uh, equally, I'm not hearing reports of loads and loads of people leaving in droves from financial services firms because they've been dragged back to the office. They may you know, be a bit unhappy about it, and it may not be precisely the way they'd like to work. But at the same time, most people are going, oh, actually, it's probably not a market where I want to be jumping out of this job and hoping I'm going to find another one. So I think from a firm's point of view, I, I have some sympathy that they need to find a way to work better. Yeah. I think the challenge that you know bringing, so brings back to your question a minute ago about the Areas that are difficult, um, I think linked directly to that is the whole kind of relevance of the senior leadership and connection of the senior leadership to the people that they are actually leading uh, and trying to make that a, a continued relevance when they have come out of a completely different um, social environment that they are they have a different set of attitudes and a different set of values that they're applying to these things and the uh and therefore connecting to the people that they're leading is 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 obviously hard Uh, and i think some are doing that much better than others some individually and and corporately i think that there are uh areas where where they're doing it well
0: yeah and and in in some of these organizations the big issues that are coming up in the surveys are um you know I don't really trust the senior leadership team to make the right decisions in the future. And, and ethically, I'm not sure they'll do the right thing. Whoa. I mean, those are two big things back to you, what you're saying there, but this is coming up in different surveys and different organizations I'm working with that they question whether their senior leaders will do the right thing and, and actually have the right integrity and principles on which to do the right thing because the Gen Z uh, generation And, you know, I, I see this with my four children who are all in their sort of 27 to 31 year old air group and they all got married, is that uh, they and their and their husbands and wives are beginning to go, I need this organization to be mission purpose driven mm-hmm. and to care about the community and the environment and to be bigger than just a job. You know, yeah. your generation can afford to to pay your mortgages and have your houses and your cars and things we might never be able to pay for that. So we're going for experiences and things that relate to our values. I mean, anything come up for you on that, Bob?
1: No, I completely agree with you. I think it's an interesting thing, isn't it? If you look back, if I look back to the start of my career and I sort of mentioned it, you know, I wanted to fly and there wasn't really an avenue into doing that commercially at that stage. So the Air Force was the place to go and do it. Uh, and I I suppose I didn't study my own value, value set comparison with the militaries. In the same way as i think someone would do now i think people are making youngsters these days are making choices and looking very specifically about you know what's your esg agenda here you know oh. have you what, what's your environmental policy how are you going on getting to net zero the uh and you know those sorts of things are actively influencing whether they want the job in that organization it's not just about chasing the money or uh or the big role or whatever it happens to be and and i think that is uh definitely giving most organizations or should be giving most organizations pause for thought in terms of how they actually run their recruitment and how they, uh, how they genuinely apply the policies. The, yeah. Uh,
0: and, and you were saying earlier, as we were discussing this before we go into your third point, if you can uh, think of that in the meantime, um, is that um when you and I join, I joined the military, I suppose, to serve from 18 to 55. I actually left after 20 years because I wanted to go into, into business, do my MBA, that kind of stuff. And also, I was questioning whether uh, I, I looked at my career. Was I going to go all the way? Did I, uh, Having been a, a, a fly on the wall, I looked at the Army board. I go, do I want to be one of them? not really am i good enough to be one of them according to my reports probably not do i fit in probably not so so i made quite an unusual statement that i was going to leave and why are you leaving you've got a great career ahead of you and all this kind of but but now it's quite the opposite people in the military they uh, you were telling me they have a career average pension rather than a final salary pension um which is normally exponential with their career as you explained to me and so that's not a big attraction to them to stay um and, and when i look at my my children and their partners and their friends they're going i might do two or three years here but i'm certainly not going to stay 20 years to become a partner or you know 20 years to become to uh, 30 35 40 years to become a a general or a, a air, you know a chief of the air staff or whatever it might be And and to keep that loyalty and that longevity, which you want to get that all that experience through, it's it's really quite a problem,
1: isn't it? Yeah, I think it's a huge challenge. I think retention in any organisation is is probably the bigger challenge. I mean, if you look specifically at the military, I don't don't think they have a challenge with recruitment, particularly. I, I think the... Certainly, so listening to something recently about the air force. You know, they're they're just still doing pretty well on their recruitment numbers, and are there areas, in particular areas, that they want to recruit more? Yeah, sure. Um, but they, by and large, have got that one relatively well covered. I think the bigger area is definitely retention, and and particularly in a world where you want people who have got really deep expertise. Um, if you look at the flying in the air force, is a good example of this, where sure you have people and always have had people who go up the career ladder and therefore do rather less flying than some others but the, the air force has a system called professional aviators where uh, you know you you can stay flying or in flying related jobs really your whole career it limits your promotion potential but you get paid more in compensation for that at lower rank because you've, you've kind of changed career stream and the that's really valuable, because you want people who've got 1000s of hours and you know, or more 1000s of hours than than the career guys, uh, and uh, who are well and truly steeped in in a business that actually requires deep technical expertise and lots and lots of experience That's hard uh, to, to continue to get if you are um, seeing people who parachute in and out, you know, and do three, four years and then uh, and then disappear.
0: Yeah, really good. Did you come up with the third theme
1: that you're seeing in business that you've helped business leaders with, Bob? I think the 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 jo- the nature of the jobs is going to be. It's, it kind of links almost to what we were just saying. Actually, was was the third point I was thinking about is that you know, you in in almost any industry you want people who have got depth of experience that really matters I, mean, I think a lot of people have been critical you know, including me some of the time about politicians sometimes who you that know, they're actually in senior levels of government and you then go and scrutinize some of them and say well have you ever had a job other than in politics because you know some of them haven't i mean they, they started out and they've, they've just jumped straight in and that's all they've ever done i think the risk is that there'll be lots more industries a bit like that where people have got very spotty careers of different things Which might have been very satisfying and very enjoyable and gives them a breadth of different experiences, but not necessarily a depth that they're actually going to need that's going to make them real experts. I mean, if I look to what I was doing at Deloitte uh, and when I was there full time, we were obviously we were doing crisis management advice and support uh, to all sorts of different organizations to make them better in in res- more resilient for crises and and helping them with their policies helping them with the training and the uh, and uh, you know just ensuring that they were if they got to a crisis point that actually it was going to it was going to go better than it would have done if they had done nothing that relies on expertise and and depth of expertise and uh, not just someone who's just kind of read a book, you know, a bit about it and, and jumped in and said, Okay, here you go. Here's how you do it. And, and I think it's just one example because I think you could apply that lens to just about everything I can think of, really. And I think that is an area that is going to be harder for leaders in organizations to navigate um, as time goes on and we get more of. more people in and the population of your organization has suddenly become more of those kind of individuals that you've got, uh, you might have the right numbers, but you've got less and less overall experience.
0: Yeah, Uh, I I think that's really true. And looking back, all the way back over your 34 and a half years in the Royal Air Force and your time in Deloitte and the work you've done now, let's go back to when you were 16 to 18 years old, the young Bob Judson, um, what advice if you flew, if you went back to the future in your DeLorean, um, I saw one of the, uh, Tesla X's the other day with the gull wings. And I thought it looks so cool. Uh, we've just got ourselves a Tesla model Y and it's like, a, it's like a spaceship. It's so cool. I really love the modern aspects of it. Anyway, uh, off on a, a tangent, but you've gone back to the future in your DeLorean. What advice would you give the young Bob about this matters and that doesn't?
1: yeah actually i had uh, i've had a tesla no i didn't have an x i'd uh, had an s and it's an amazing car I loved it i mean the technology is just astonishing uh, from a electric car point of view it's wonderful to uh, to see where what the future direction of uh, of that is i think um but going back in time pre-tesla uh to to the 16 to 18 year old bob judson i think don't doubt yourself um you know have uh real faith that you know you can get where you want to go to uh, and i'm it's not that i didn't really i did doubt myself a great deal i just think i probably could have done less of it and and had you know confidence i had a dreadful time in the flying training system uh, and i went through a whole series particularly the basic flying training system i i was a slow learner slow late developer and luckily the system at that stage was such that it tolerated that and and, uh, you know it meant that i went through my basic flying training at linton on ooze failing every every test doing it again passing it usually and then ultimately ending up with right you're by the time i got to the very end of it i can vividly remember my my chief flying instructor was flying it with me because it was a chop ride it was a you know pass and carry on in the system fail and don't be a pilot anymore so it was a pretty big moment uh and and actually having the confidence to to think yeah okay i can make this work and being persistent because persistence does pay off i mean most definitely it not you know not every time for everybody but you know that i think would have been an area i would have uh, would have focused that advice on
0: right and what we could do uh that was a lovely bit of advice and and i relate to that someone who's dyslexic i struggled so hard so often with so many exams that i failed and had to redo and and struggle. And I just thought I was thick and stupid. And if only the teacher had not told me I was thick, I was going to be a dustman and instead said, maybe you're dyslexic, perhaps we should test for that. But of course- in those days they didn't you know just like they didn't know what ptsd would you know your grandfather's just a bit depressed at times from the first world war you know it had nothing to do with him being hit on the head by a marlin spike and left in a a, in a wet trench with the rats for two days and then crawling back nothing to do with that it just gets a bit depressed i can't understand why um but um we'll just whiz through a few others because you've got some great views and experiences to share um MQ, we're going around the Inspired Leadership Compass very, very quickly. Um, moral question. Give me an example of something that
1: didn't work out as you intended to, Bob. <laughs> uh, so I suppose that it's, this is a story that's got a happy ending as well. So it's maybe not quite going to be exactly where you're uh, um, where you wanted to get to, but... I mentioned being in the States and being the Chief Defence Staff's Liaison Officer. I mean, at the time I went to the States, I was in the process of uh, we were building a house with the house I'm sitting in now and I live in now and the I'd already been to Afghanistan. I'd been uh, new there for nine months, come back and two years in in a job in the in the military in the Ministry of Defence and. Then I was being told, right, okay, you're going to go to the States for nine months, which was another unaccompanied role. So you go out, you know, um, leave leave family behind and disappear. Uh, And that was spectacularly tough on the back of some of the thing, the personal stuff I'd already talked about. You know, I'd lost my mum and obviously lost the twins. Um, I was now at the end of that tour with my wife, just about getting over all of that and the uh, getting her own health back after it would have been a terrible time. And now, right, pack yourself off to the States. Oh, and oh, by the way, you know, I'm in the middle of building a house. And so I went because I I ended up, I took it all the way up to the chief of the air staff uh, and, you know, ultimately said to him, look, so I'll do it. But you've got to know this is painful. You know, you're asking me to do stuff that I've never said no in my whole career. I've never said no, but this is now this is a, a real stretch. I mean as it turned out and i didn't know this at the time of course that was a real it was a big uptick because the job got really busy it it gave me great exposure in terms of everything that went on while i was there and i got promoted and i came back into a really really senior job as the assistant chief defense staff operations when uh, when i left so it had a happy ending but it certainly was not the way i would have planned it and and it meant that because i was in the middle of building a house i was i spent six months of that tour um, finishing my report back to the chief of defence on the uh, on a friday night and then driving to the airport jumping on an aeroplane flying back to uh, to the uk for a day to supervise the house and you know go and talk to the builders and, and be on site for uh, for a day and then get on an aeroplane back on sunday so i was back and ready to uh, ready to go on on a, on a monday morning which was brutal i mean it was it was tough it was doable but it was tough uh, and so i wouldn't want to want to repeat that no definitely not and that leads me
0: actually to the next question i'll leave out purpose meaning and purpose because you've lived a life of meaning and purpose and service so i don't i don't really uh think i i doubt anything on there that uh, you couldn't teach us all but health so when when you, you know you you've had your the 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 death of so many of your family then your wife was, was really unwell and you were putting yourself under massive strain. You know, the decisions that were being made in the Pentagon and you were the, the chief of defense staff's liaison officer, privy to, as you were sharing with me, some amazing conversations which you go, I can't believe they allowed you to be there while those conversations were going on. Even being in a room when people are talking to the president. I mean, it's amazing. Um, but the pressure the physical and the mental pressure on you must have been immense. What's your top tip on health quotient on physical and mental health for busy leaders, wherever they may be.
1: Yeah. It's a, it's a fabulously important point. No doubt about it. I, I think the, uh, and it does depend on you as an individual to a degree, this, I am quite good at compartmenting myself. So not taking stuff home from, uh, from work and, Letting it sort of prey on my mind and and you know, push me into uh, into a sort of more difficult space. Part of the reason for that is I, I have done a number of jobs where I've worked in with very highly classified stuff, which I haven't been able to talk about at all to anybody uh, you know, out of the work environment, and and therefore I've been good at compartmenting. Part of it is I've just been, I suppose I'm good at um, my self awareness is pretty good, so I know um, when I'm reaching a point when I'm really fried. Uh, and I can remember. I mean, in terms of top tips, I, I can remember when I was a, a, a taken over as a squadron commander. It wasn't long after uh, I'd split up with my first wife, uh, I, uh, which was not acrimonious, but it was it was still difficult, uh, as any kind of divorce is. And I got to a point where I realised, you know, probably two or three months into into this very busy job commanding a squadron, that I really, really needed to take some time off. Uh, and uh, and being I mean upshot of all of that was I went on holiday it's the only time I've ever gone to a holiday with unnamed destination uh you know in terms of hotels I knew where I was flying to but didn't know where I was going to put myself in at the end of it I just said it's got to be hot and it's got to have a pool and I ended up spending a pretty much a week asleep almost and uh and it just I'd reached the point where I was really chronically tired and I needed to uh, needed to sort myself out luckily I, and i I was in a position where i did know that myself i have seen people who have had to be told and pushed into that and I, and I think finding a way as a leader to know yourself when you're really really at the point where it's it's too much is important basic health is obviously really important to your point about how do you keep healthy i mean i i think Decent diet, you know, trying to make sure that even in those busy jobs in Washington was a great example. I was, I was coming away from very busy days. I was going back to a flat where I was on my own uh, for the vast majority of the time I was there and you know, making sure I still had something to eat and was, you know, uh, and, and try to and eat in America, which isn't, was the easiest place to eat healthily, um, but, you know, trying not to uh, to go and have a burger every night was was important. And, and physical exercise. I mean, obviously, these days. I mean, I've got two dogs. Uh, back in the uh, in the earlier days, I used to run a lot and and kept myself you know, very very fit. And uh, I think that you store up if you if you do if you have early on in your life you have a really good health regime, that does help with that. It doesn't mean you can just stop later on and relax. But I remember talking to a doctor a little while ago, and I was having a medical after I'd left the air force. And he said that your physical condition in terms of your, your cardiovascular, particularly, if you have invested a lot early on in life, it really does reap benefits downstream. Uh, you can't do that. If you start doing stuff at 50, you know, and you've never really been you know active, that's not a great place to be.
0: Uh, great advice. Um, and, and all that you say, I I try and live that myself. Morning run this morning with the dog and then some weights in the in the in the garage which i've now converted to fully fledged gym so i think it I, I want to have my health span match my lifespan and and uh go out with the screech of burning rubber and hell what a ride uh and and uh suddenly suddenly die that day would be nice uh, but not too quickly um uh, emotional intelligence eq a big thing for you and i and uh the professions that we have uh how do you listen well to other people? We, we, you're going to talk in your top tip about listening, but but how
1: do you listen well, Bob? Uh, I think the thing that's helped me the most in this space is better understanding over time of personality types, uh, and knowing that you know there are lots of people out there who are not like you, and they're not like you for these reasons, and you know if you want to motivate them flick their switches and get them to do stuff that works in your space then you need to understand how to do that uh, and what is likely to work most effectively in terms of whether you're four box quadrant kind of individual looking at you know disc or, or something where you're looking at different types of people then that is really useful and what it's given me is a much more and being a coach actually has really helped as well in terms of active listening um, knowing that, right, okay, I really want to pay attention to what you're saying. I'm not just passively kind of, you know, and we've all done it. We've all been in a position where, you know, you you, you listen to somebody talking and then go, what did you say? And because actually, actually haven't been listening at all. And so trying very hard not to do that uh, has really, really helped. Great. And then really linked to that is CQ, collaborative
0: intelligence, collective intelligence, teamwork. How, how have you learned or what's your tip about getting on, with people who are most different from you, it's similar to the EQ, but it's a slight development. People who are very different, and you know, the thing that Donald Trump can't do, you know, and <laughs> but getting on with people who are not like him.
1: Yeah, I think, it is, again, it is it's a natural trait, isn't it? You surround yourself with people that are like you if uh, if you're not careful. Um, and it is, I think, it's very easy to do. It's equally useful to recognize if you're like me, where we talked about academics and so on earlier. Uh, I know that I'm not the smartest person in the room in a lot of the rooms I've been in. And, and therefore, I want people around me that are you know, going to provide me with both different opinions and, and often better opinions and and i think the self-awareness is key to that if you if you if you feel that you are the one with all the answers generally you're not going to be um and you you need probably someone at some point in your life to point out to you that you're not the right person to uh, you know to be doing that uh and and that's key because if you if you get to that point you know you, that you're you think you're you're the best person in the room always and you're very dominant that's a disaster
0: uh, and we were talking about certain people who remain nameless who we found are like that, that, that if they want your opinion, they'll give it to you. And they it's never entered their mind that they could be wrong. What if you're wrong? Um, I think that's very true. Resilience, you've... Go boy, you know, with your stories and, you know, being a pilot, even for my, my brief times in the cockpit and trying to imagine what it was like for my father, even flying over the Lincolnshire coastline as a gift from my daughters for my 60th uh, and having the chance to be at the controls, even in a tiny plane. There's so many things to be thinking about as a pilot. And so... You know, you need massive resilience when you're tired and all that's going on and, you know, uh, Jaguar with the nuclear uh, deterrent and all this kind of stuff that you were thinking about. Uh, What's your top tip? How have you picked yourself up in times of adversity? And you've had a lot.
1: Um, Yeah, I think, again, being able to compartmentalize is useful. Uh, So you're not necessarily, even in the toughest day, taking stuff, uh, out of one room and into the next so uh, and that doesn't mean forget about it necessarily but it means putting it somewhere where you can actually refer back to it and deal with it later might be useful i mean i'll give you a great example so when i when i was a station commander um i used to find quite regularly you'd be dealing with something in the office that was difficult i mean it might be a personal issue for somebody or a disciplinary matter or you know worse and as in afghanistan i had worse clearly um but then you walk out of the office you walk down and you might just be going walking down the corridor to the loo or something but actually you bump into people who that's the first interaction they've had with you during that day maybe maybe even at all uh and they know you're the boss you know you're the guy in charge and the last thing that you need to do at that point is be scowling at them You know, really down you know kind of don't ever engage with me kind of way because that's the impression they're left with. And I was always very conscious of you never get a second chance to make a first impression. So trying to ensure that you don't do that is, is really helpful.
0: Yeah. And, and I've got coming on the podcast, um, the, the former CEO of three power who went under John Reed's guidance into a peace support operation where not a single round would be fired. And instead 500,000 rounds were fired in six months 15 people were killed, including someone getting a VC and a George Cross, and 45 were uh, wounded beyond uh, belief. Um, You were in Afghanistan, quick throwaway line, but it wasn't just any job in Afghanistan. Was it not? Were you not in charge of Kandahar Airfield? Was that my understanding? I mean, tell people who don't know anything about Kandahar Airfield. Wasn't it one of the busiest airfields in the world at one stage?
1: Yeah, it was it was a huge job. I mean, it was I was the second incumbent as a NATO commander. So previously it had been a US command uh, prior to my predecessor, and we had some twenty nations. More on occasions, we had twenty five thousand people in my time. Towards the end of it, we had one hundred and seventy airplanes and the the command job i wasn't necessarily in full command of all of those people but i was was in a position where a couple of thousand of them worked directly for me and the rest i was kind of chief cat herder so i had to try and make sure that the base ran smoothly i was responsible for all the logistics all of the force protection so keeping them safe on and off the base and that's everything from traffic rules to the worst case thing this a nightmare scenario would be suicide bomber on the base, that kind of thing, because that would obviously have been horrendous. So and an awful lot of for armed force protection people on the base to deliver that and off the base for 450, you know, uh, roughly square kilometer area around the base where we were trying to stop the Taliban shooting rockets at us. Not always successfully. We have I've got a picture on my wall here that you can't see, but the uh, where I've got all the rocket strikes from uh, the time I was there. Uh, and maintaining the kind of morale of the people through that when particularly some of the ones who that was that was not what they were used to at all that was quite challenging obviously the logistic flow all the stuff that you know you, i mean army marches on its stomach and so on you know making sure that all those things worked and you had the uh the right kind of prep for that it, it was a it was a really big deal it was an amazing mm. job fantastic mm. fascinating fascinating job
0: uh well thank you for for your service and it it must be so hard for people who served like yourself and uh, particularly those who had servicemen who were killed around them or friends as well, to see how Afghanistan just went down to a spiral and all that was done seemed to be for naught. It's a,
1: it's a tough one. Yeah, interestingly though, Jonathan, just on that, I, I, I think you're right. I think it is hard. And I thought that when it came to a close in the way that it did, that uh, you know how would i because i did lose a couple of guys uh, on a on a mine strike luckily only two but i had some others seriously injured um and talking to the the relatives obviously is really tough after that and i think particularly after the withdrawal and then the sort of taliban resurgence as it were very difficult interestingly i was on a on a call not that long ago with a guy though who'd lost two legs in afghanistan who i was having this conversation with him and he said no not at all you know do i think it was worth it absolutely i think it was worth it if one kid or one woman has a better chance at life as a result of what we did there for 20 years and bear in mind 20 years for a lot of the in mind the population of afghanistan is very young the uh, an awful lot of them have only known that kind of mm-hmm. life and mm-hmm. then what's happened with the taliban then that's that was worth it we have undoubtedly made a significant difference to the way it will play out it may not play out that way for a few more years but you know that was really interesting i thought wow uh, no that's someone a, who's been so badly injured that's an amazing yeah, thing
0: that that's a, it's a really uplifting kind of viewpoint because mm-hmm. that's a whole generation that's gone through and gone off they might have gone to other parts of the world or whatever it might be um i'm always interested in uh People's brand and humility, and uh, I don't, I don't want sort of arrogant inspirities. I need leaders with uh, self-awareness, as you were talking about. How how do you think you're perceived by others? I mean, have the the, the forces never used to do 360? But I think did they start to do 360 before you left in all directions? Because yeah. before it was just how how much people could suck up to the boss and tell the general how wonderful he was and how handsome he looked and. And that got their career on the on the road being a
1: sarcastic old bastard that i am mate. i've seen it done in the military i've certainly seen it done a lot outside the military i i think in both instances it can work quite well but it, it gets a little bit dumbed down if you allow people to choose the people that are reporting on you mm. because inevitably <clears throat> inevitably everyone's human i mean they're going to pick people that are um likely to uh, to say reasonably nice things about them you know, for the most part and and so i think that does deflect it slightly um, but i think it's a good process and i think it, it works well if you if you use it for for what it's designed for to try and get better and and actually you know reflect on what's being said to you and and find a way to uh, to do that because humility is really important. And I think being, I, I like you, I mean, we were talking about leaders earlier on, I've seen too many people over the years who have you know, nicked your ideas and claim them as their own, or they've you know, climbed all over other people in order to climb further up the ladder. Uh, which is a a dreadful way of of going about it. And I think, you know, giving people credit for what they do, being loyal in both directions, because loyalty is most definitely a two-way street, Mm -hmm. uh, I I think is is hugely important. Um, And if you get that right, you can end up with people who will... Back to my chuck jacoby comment of earlier on you know they'll follow you off a cliff um but if you uh if you get it wrong they'll push you off the cliff uh, yeah. so <laughs> you know, it's important to be uh um be aware of where you are in that space i think yeah well look we're coming to the end of the podcast I, i've deliberately
0: gone on a little longer because i so enjoyed what uh the experience and the stories you've got bob um we're going to end with a, a favourite book you'd recommend, then we'll have the two-minute top tip. But before we do that, is there anything else? Because we talked about so much before we went on air. Anything else that you'd like to put across as a point or an observation or a tip for people on
1: leadership on any particular topic that comes to mind? Yeah, okay. I think, uh, the yes, the, the point I would make, I think, is l- there are too many leaders in corporate organisations as well as actually in in the military world, who think that because they're leaders they don't need help, and they don't benefit from help, and you know they don't, they don't want to ask for it. They don't, they feel it weakens their position and all the rest of it. And I think the reality is, everyone is better if they're provided advice and support and help, uh, whether that's independently through sort of coaching or whatever. Then I I think it's. Um, it doesn't matter. But, you know, your team and you will be stronger as a leader if you actually do just step back a bit, look at, you know, how could we actually improve ourselves? And and taking time to actually reflect on that, I think is really, really key.
0: That's a really great point.
1: Time and again, you know, I, I have
0: a coach. Um, I'm sure you have your own coach or supervisor. I'm a coaching supervisor myself. I don't have time to do much for other coaches now because I'm so busy with clients, but and the podcast, but I'm always thinking about how can I improve and, and what have I learned? What have I learned? What am I going to do differently? Learning in action. Um, favorite book, Bob, what would you give, give a recommendation as a favorite book and why should people listen to it? I mean, I, I hope there's an audio version of it because I'd like to listen to them. Uh, what would be your recommendation?
1: Uh Pretty much without question in, in the space we're talking about here, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey. I I, I wish I'd read that years ago. I didn't. Uh, I read it you know, uh, a couple of years ago, I suppose, was, was the first time I got into it. There is an audiobook version, which I thought was fantastic, because it's not least because it's actually read by Stephen Covey, and he puts it over there for, and you. You're almost in the room with him, with him giving you all of that. But as a, a, a set of things to reflect on, and a set of things that give you insight into not only yourself but how you can actually improve the the lot of other people and work with teams and everything else. I think it's is brilliant. Absolutely superb book.
0: Fantastic.
1: Um no and, and I've
0: listened and re-listened to it many times. So I support that. So um Bob if you just introduce yourself uh talk about what you did before um in a little thumbnail sketch and what you're doing now and then give us your top tip. That will
1: finish us off nicely. So thanks, Jonathan. Yeah, I'm Bob Judson. I'm a, uh, a former Royal Air Force Air Vice Marshal. I uh, did 34 and a half years in uh, in the Air Force as a fighter pilot, then as a senior leader, uh, concluding as a uh, as a two star. Uh, then went to work for Deloitte. And these days I run my own leadership development business. I'm a podcaster and a, uh, and a coach. And my top tip is uh, quite straightforward that you have two ears and one mouth and use them in proportion. Uh, i think too many people uh, talk more than they listen particularly leaders they feel that you know they need to be the ones saying something where in reality actually there's an awful lot of other people in the room who are going to have an awful lot of good things to provide you advice on and if you take the time to listen to what they're going to say that's going to be hugely beneficial for you and generally listen first then talk because if you talk first then you'll shut down half the audience in terms of what they're then going to say back to you because they don't want to turn around and Say something that disagrees with uh, with anything you've just said,
0: Bob. Well, thank you very much indeed. It's been great having you on the Inspire Leadership Podcast, and I can see why your podcast will be hugely successful. And uh, people will be very lucky to have you as their coach and their advisor on their own leadership development. So, thank you very much indeed.
1: Uh, thanks, Jonathan. It's been great. Really enjoyed it. A uh, fascinating conversation, as you say, so much in common and uh, so much to talk about. So, I've loved it. Thanks, Bob. Thank you for listening. We
0: hope we've ignited your curiosity and broadened your perspectives. My guests and I provide this service to you for free. All we ask in return is that you share it now with one other leader you know, so they also benefit too. Please subscribe, rate and review us on your podcast platform. We value your feedback and invite you to connect with us through my website, jonathanperks.com, where you can sign up for your weekly podcast newsletter. You can also follow us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. I'm your host, Jonathan Bowman-Perks, and thank you for joining us on the Inspiring Leadership podcast. You can hear another unique guest next Tuesday. Goodbye.